All right, we're good. All right, day one FM. Got a. I'm excited about this this pod episode. We're gonna talk about the 2024 predictionary. Predictionary. Don't do it. <laughs> uh, God, sorry. That was a fleeting moment of personal embarrassment. Um, but yeah, for those who don't know, uh, the day one predictionary is part dictionary, part prediction. It's a series of words um that we feel like will define or actually you know what that will define the year ahead I'll, I'll say it uh with more more conviction that uh will define the year ahead it's basically our version of a trend report or as clara wrote a dictionary for the future which i think is uh. spiritual articulated far better than i could uh but that's okay um <laughs> but yeah this is actually the fourth year fourth year doing it um i will say it was definitely the hardest one to write and it has been about six months, <laughs> six months in the making, written and rewritten. Um, but yeah, it's it's definitely one of my kind of favorite aspects of working at at the agency. A lot of autonomy to kind of write, give a lay of the land of culture at large, and more so a critique. I feel like a lot of trend reports are missing critiques these days. It's kind of more just a mirror. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Clara, any any intro words before we? Uh, dive in intro to the intro yeah, intro to the intro no i mean we did talk about it in writing the forward though that and i feel like every year it gets harder i don't know if it gets harder because like thinking of something new to say after reading very similar articles day over day month over month mm-hmm. like if it's just sort of part of par for the course of these things but it does feel like i don't know each consecutive predictionary is more of a struggle but I think that it was better for it, probably. Maybe. I know that was like a depressing note to leave yeah. my introduction on. But... I was actually going to say, you know, in, in years past, you have been fairly accurate in terms of things that have come to fruition or, you know, reflections that we've made that have kind of circled their way around the office and, you know, informed a lot of brand campaigns. I think we've hit the nail on the head a few times with things like, AI anxiety and how that has come to kind of dominate cultural discourse. So I'm excited to hear a bit more about what is on the horizon for 2024. I know. Buckle up, buddy. <laughs> um, but yeah, just like some some quick background. So the, in previous years, we've outlined essentially between 10 and 20. You can tell the workload got longer <laughs> because the, the amount of words and the amount of, the amount of writing that we've done uh, has diminished but you know quantity over i mean quality over quantity whoa um but this year we're and previous iterations of the predictionary have been kind of like you know there hasn't necessarily been a wrapper on it other than the year ahead um but this year we're doing things a bit differently and we've kind of broken it out into three different chapters that i mean all of them are you know related in one way or another but we've broken it out in three different chapters with two different words each so the chapters kind of touch on different aspects of culture so one is more kind of focused on tech and internet which we the wrapper for that chapter is called alternate reality and the gist is that it's just really hard to understand what is happening in culture on the internet what is popular um 
why things are popular um, as a whole. And so we've broken that out into data dissonance, which is kind of the disconnect, and we'll talk about each word individually, which is the disconnect between the data used to tell stories about culture and culture itself. So kind of like rogue metrics and rogue statistics, and then ad nauseum, which is if you've ever seen an ad and said it's giving, it's that feeling that you, <laughs> that you get from that. Uh, we have two mid to fail, which is chapter two, which is kind of our cultural chapter at large. And this just has to do with the fact that you're, you ever, you know, just dipped your toes in those cultural waters like, eh, this is warm. It's not too hot, not too cold. Do you ever dip those toes <laughs> in those cultural waters? If so, you might be a dino. <laughs> Um, anyway, sorry, go on. I didn't mean to no, disturb yeah, the flow. Disturb my monologue. It's all good. It's fine. Um, but this just has to do with kind of like an era of mid as as a whole. So we have Zombie IP, which is a franchise or talent that lives long past its expiration date. Taking a look at our elected representatives these days, that might count too. Um, but yeah, last year we spoke about franch franchise fatigue, which is just overall fatigue with... Um, you know, superhero franchises, spinoffs, remix, etc. So this is um, back from the dead, I suppose. <laughs> Literally by a hologram tour. Yeah, I know. And then underneath that, we have double click spelled with a Q-U-E. Um, Peak, some might say. Yes. <laughs> and this is just about bringing some more intentional friction um, back into community building. There's been a lot of discourse around, you know, bringing back gatekeeping and helping to facilitate your own taste outside of the algorithm. So... That word explores that. Uh, and then last on the menu, uh, we have the new standard, broken out, Stan and Dard. <laughs> and this and is, yeah, Dard, sure. Um, and this one is kind of our fandom chapter. So we have a femme era, which talks about how like you are defining your identity through fleeting trends. You're in your mob, mob wife era, your red onion aesthetic era, tomato girl era, et cetera, and how it's kind of hard to build substantive tight-knit communities around that so you're just kind of left in a state of vertigo and then finally this is one of my favorites open source entertainment or OSENT and this is kind of the next stage of UGC so if you're out there and you made a fun little gag city uh, urban environment for Nicki Minaj's Pink Friday 2 um, that would be an example of open source entertainment it's kind of fan creative spin-offs are generated faster then maybe um, and at a greater volume than artistic or brand creative could uh, and some are incentivized and others are not so there's a lot of ramifications there um, and that's it for the pod today thank you <laughs> no but there's a lot to discuss i just thought i'd tee it up ahead of time so you get the lay of the land um, and then i think we can kind of break it out into some of our favorites mm -hmm. as a whole so overall i i was really interested in the idea of data dissonance um, especially because we see a lot of reports that use numbers. We use numbers a lot in our reporting. Numbers are something. A lot of numbers, a lot folks. Of yeah, yeah, a lot of numbers. <laughs> My head's spinning. You yeah. Know, what's real? What's not real? Are the 3.6 billion views on hashtag Roman Empire something to measure anything by? Or mm -hmm. is there just that many people on TikTok? Yeah. <laughs> you know? um, so, yeah. Can you explain a bit more what data dissonance is and how you kind of came up with that? Yeah, well, I think there's like several different aspects to data dissonance. I think that like social met or I think that metrics are kind of highly sought after social currency. It's what's on kind of the recap report and it's what's used in think pieces to justify that a trend 
is existing. So for instance, for instance, if mob wife aesthetic has whatever, a hundred million views that the hashtag is a hundred million views on TikTok or whatever, that is justification that this is a thing and this is worth talking about. But yeah, I think what's interesting with data dissonance too, and we kind of allude to it a bit, is that it's just so much easier to generate a number now, like in a similar way, like if you even went back a few years, you would kind of have few gatekeepers or even just like pollsters who had the ability to create a survey of like a critical mass of Gen Zers. But I think that these days, like a brand like, say, Etsy can do its own brand survey that says like 75% of Gen Z say that they bought a gift for a friend on like a secondhand shop or whatever it is. So it's you have that side of things where it's much easier to create the poll you wish to see in the world. And then on the other end, you have social platforms, which like Eli was saying, kind of say things like, views, engagements, and they're somewhat purposefully foggy sometimes in terms of what exactly a view entails in terms of like, did this person engage with this video beyond like watching it on their phone for 10 seconds? And if something gets 3 billion views, how many of them are just that, you know, just someone who had this video up for 10 seconds on their phone and immediately scrolled past? So it's easier, I think, from that standpoint, for the numbers that we are getting from like different platforms to kind of inflate the importance of a trend or like inflate how much people are actually engaging or like subscribing to something like Pickle Onion Girl or whatever, you know. Um, but yeah, I don't know, Eli, if you had something further. Yeah, I mean, I think that the definition also expands and the word, I guess, expands just beyond social metrics as a whole. So from like a brand and social side, I think we've shifted to like quantifiable culture as the go-to. Like I said, brand, like engagement metrics are the primary social currency that brands seek out. But I also see this in something like economic uh, data where by all accounts, I suppose you could say that the economy is humming along very well. Unemployment is low, inflation is falling, um, the stock market is at an all-time high, the S&P is hitting highs daily, but people feel like it is not really doing well for them at all. So that's something that Kyla Scanlon, um, who's an economist, wrote as like the vibe session. So like the numbers are there, but the vibes are not really. So to Clara's point, like you can kind of just conjure up any number that you want to help justify the existence of a trend or consumer sentiment or economic sentiment. And obviously, I think there's more rigor involved in economic data than there is in social data. The issue on like social platforms is that we don't really know how these numbers are being counted or quantified. Um, but I think it's just in the move to you know, spotlight numbers as the most important thing. We are kind of ignoring how people actually think on the ground. And I think that's an issue with like trend reporting as a whole. It's kind of devoid of actual consumer sentiment in my mind. And I think lastly, just to that end and something that we talked about sort of towards the tail end of trying to refine it is that I don't think that data dissonance in terms of how these numbers are either like coming up or being used by media or being used by agencies like you and I and stuff like that. Like, I don't think that it's necessarily 
intentionally to mislead people or to intentionally oftentimes like obscure what's actually happening. But I think, you know, last year we talked about trendflation and how fast that culture moves. And I think in a very genuine effort to understand why certain things are popular on the internet, people have turned to things like, oh, it got a billion views or, oh, I read this thing in Forbes that said 75% of Gen Z thinks X and is, you know, like I think that a lot of it is very genuinely people trying to search for ways to understand popularity and influence and virality, but that the tools we have, meaning like the data is often either like not quite enough or like isn't providing the right nuance or providing the right context. And so it's really about, I think, too, in terms of the solution, thinking about how data fits into sort of maybe a larger set of tools or maybe some more nuanced thinking in terms of framing that versus relying on like whatever like the hashtag viewing is mm -hmm. on the internet. Yeah, it, it's kind of making me think a lot about the New York Times and the New York Times, specifically the style section mm -hmm. in the past, you know, two or so years, at least since the pandemic hit. I think we can all agree if something appears in the New York Times styles uh, as it pertains to a TikTok trend, it's probably like far beyond over mm -hmm. at that point. But I think to your point, you know, previously they've run whole articles about things like and not to single anything out here, but like Cottagecore, for example, and the it kind of hinges on the the numbers of it. So this story is, you know, brought to you by the 3.4 billion views that prove Cottagecore is real. Right. And meanwhile, someone who's reading the paper and, you know, it doesn't really matter where, but and they're like, oh, Cottagecore, like. It must be real if the, the numbers tell me so. And New York Times has written an entire article about it, yet have never experienced anything like that themselves. So I think in the same way that dissonance is like very real to the average person who's, you know, bumping up against the the dictates of like whatever the New York Times says or whatever brands are kind of telling us to believe. Well, I just think that to wrap this up, I think it's indicative of a larger issue with culture at large, which kind of gets into too mid to fail is that we have started to think of culture of songs of shows of movies as or and fashion as like equations to be solved for essentially which is you know algorithms kind of run everything and when that happens i think a you kind of lose nuance and the weird and the wacky and the exciting and everything kind of gets flattened um and B, I just think like the numbers start to lose meaning as a whole. Like what does 5 billion PR impressions mean? Right. I don't know. Like if you've like, never seen anything, does it really, if you've never seen it out in the wild, does it really matter? I think it's, I think a good example is like Be Real, you know, the mm -hmm. app that reached so many, like the most downloaded app of all time or something. But to the actual person, all it meant that you could, was like you could post a photo of yourself in real time and share it with friends. So like the the numbers don't really matter. It's not like the average experience of whoever's, you know, using it or whatever, but the numbers are kind of used to tell the story and you're like, yeah. who's to, I mean, who's to blame for Be Real's failure? You and know? I, I guess it's like, we're never really going to have like a mass reach cultural moment, like, a, you know, Seinfeld season finale, or like, I suppose we have Taylor Swift and the Super Bowl. Thank God. I know. I know. <laughs> but the interesting thing is that I, as much as brands say, like, we need to reach our niches and like build our audience, scale is still something that they chase. Like you mm -hmm. send a report, like, where are the numbers? You know? So I think it's just about recalibrating what successes and what impact means as a whole like we said when you like post something on your ig story you're not looking 
for like, oh my God, like 500 people looked at my story. You're like, did this one person look at my, right. <laughs> look at my story? And I yeah. think that can be like an apt analogy of like, it's more of the who versus the how many. Mm -hmm. But yeah. that kind of leads right into the too mid to fail, which I love how you coined the term mediocrity. And I was oh, wondering yes. if you could explain a bit further what too mid to fail really means. Well, <laughs> too mid to fail was a joy. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I think of all the chapters, this was the one that was, at least for me, like weighing the most heavily throughout the year. And I think we've talked about it here too, but... Like I don't some relief. Finally, <laughs> catharsis. It's really weighing heavy on my mind. <laughs> I mean, every day I go to sleep and I think about chapter two. <laughs> <laughs> I'm you kidding. joke. You joke. I'm, <laughs> I'm not joking. <laughs> but yeah, so as far as too mid to fail and mediocrity, I think over the course of this year and I think also towards the end of last year, you're talking a lot about, in addition to the sort of a lack of a breakthrough sort of moment in the scale of something like the Seinfeld finale, it also just felt like culturally nothing felt exceptionally novel or exceptionally like, wow, this is so cool. I've never seen anything like this. And it was a lot of like, oh, that's cool or that's interesting. And then like immediately on to the next thing. But that this sort of stickiness and staying power of a cultural moment that's like defining, you know, and I think you had shared this article and we had talked about it earlier this year or late last year, I forgot what time of the year it was, um, was basically about the sort of lack of a cultural moment or movement that we could really associate with this time, whether that's because culture has become extremely corporatized, whether that's because like, franchises have taken over the theaters, whether that's because everybody is so busy in their own niche that nobody wants to sort of invest in or create sort of subcultures or even contribute to a monoculture that isn't Taylor Swift. But I think Too Mid to Fail is basically about like the amalgamation of all of that. Like on one end, you have like the sort of nostalgia overload. On the other end, you have this sort of lack of community, lack of true subculture. And how do you sort of break out beyond that and get from the mid of the world into something that's, I don't know, truly new and feels maybe groundbreaking. And I think one thing that, at least in writing Zombie IP, I thought was really interesting was The Baffler wrote a piece about the sphere, which we discussed on Day One FM not long ago. Um, but basically how the sphere is sort of like a manifestation of this sort of hyper past facing nostalgia how entertainment has become about these sort of faux experiences like the Van Gogh immersive exhibit and things of that nature. Um, and yeah, just how it's so depressing that all of our money and infrastructure is moving into that direction. Well, yeah, on the sphere, one thing that I you, you guys wrote that I think, or maybe the article wrote, I don't know, that <laughs> was quite interesting. It was like, it it's exceptional in the way it's built, but really it's just repackaging yeah. everything. It's repackaging culture and selling it back to you in a new, not even new like format. You know what I mean? So it's like yeah. there's just nothing bigger screen. There's nothing, yeah, there's nothing new about it. It's just like bigger, larger, louder. Spherical. <laughs> Spherical. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I also think so Zombie IP was a fun one to co-write, I think, but I think I enjoyed writing Double Click as well because this kind of speaks to the loss of personal style and kind of cultural groupthink and how we can get out of that. And I think a lot of that has to do back to like solving culture as an equation where it's, on TikTok specifically, it's like every brand hops onto a trend 
is basing that on like prior successes and the cookie cutter confines of what other brands have done. There's like, oh, there's a formula for this. Let's follow that. And I mean, I was listening to a podcast um, recently that talks about the same thing is like when you look to the past or when you look to things that are kind of spoon fed for you and you have um, an outline of what to do, you can do it. You can put out a piece of content or a piece of apparel or a movie pretty well, but it just like it's the same thing slightly with a slightly different wrapper. Um, so I think that's kind of what grounds us in the, um, in the mid, but yeah, back to double click. I think this year fomented a lot of status anxiety, specifically around personal style. And like, were you, were you reading Emma Klein because you enjoyed her writing or because it showed up on like the Pinterest moon board or, you know, do you regularly spend $70 on a burger and a beer at Finelli's Cafe or is it like the go-to nightlife spot as told by like the New York Times and their TikTok roundup? And I think we really need to bring back a sense of like personal agency in building taste, in building style and in building community. And I think that's kind of like a rallying cry that is written throughout the entire the entire project, you know? Like a lot of this is about thinking critically, thinking outside of the hive mind and doing things yourself, even if it's like a bit more challenging that you'll, you will in the end be better off for it. And that's not to say that like you, you shan't experiment or try different things or if your friend told you to do this, um, you know, you should feel bad about it. But I think it's just having a critical lens towards why you might like something or why you might want to buy something is something yeah. that's been lost out by, by the feed. It's just never placed in the proper context. And I feel because we have such easy access to Google or searching, you know, whatever, finding the answer to whatever question you have immediately, that nobody takes the time to really look at how something that they currently see came to be and like what its forebears were. So, for example, like the new, I don't know, Maison Margiela show that everyone is like freaking out over because... It's like Galliano's big comeback and the makeup was crazy and like men were marrying corsets and it was so theatrical or whatever. This is like a niche example, but mm -hmm. I see all these people talking online about it and like why it's the best fashion show they've ever seen and all this stuff. And it is very good, but I feel like people also act like they are experts about it because they've quickly Googled like Galliano and know a couple things that they can quickly like search on YouTube or watch a video or two. So I think that everyone, because they have such easy access to this information, do, there's no sort of lens through which it is looked at other than just like, I'm the expert, listen to me. Yeah. You know? And I think that that's also where like double click and data dissonance have an interesting overlap because I think in the same way that data dissonance is about sort of like the overload of ability to have numbers that back up your opinion or say whatever it is that you want with sort of like the backing of a statistic. I think that, you know, it's very easy to at this point sort of put yourself or I don't know, position yourself as being an expert and being sort of very passively a quote unquote expert on Twitter or a quote unquote expert on TikTok without actually having any type of depth of knowledge. Um, and I think to Eli's point earlier too, I think that's where a lot of the sort of status anxiety and insecurity comes from because I think that even though it's very easy to sort of surface level achieve 
looking somewhat literate in culture, it's very hard to actually be literate in culture because yeah. it's moving so quickly. And so I think you have a lot of people constantly jockeying amongst themselves to seem like they have, you know, as we sit here talking about the predictionary, <laughs> whatever, <laughs> like seem like they have some type of like pulse on what's going on. And not to say that that's what we're trying to do here at all, but I do think that it's an interesting I don't know, parallel between double click and data dissonance, but I think also generally between like double click and what we talk about later with ephemera, just sort of, again, that sense of people feeling very insecure in whatever trend they're participating in and like sort of being in one place and always having one eye onto the next. Like this is fleeting, like pickled onion today, tomato tomorrow. You know, right. <laughs> Like it doesn't, there isn't a sense of like, oh, I'm going to like linger and deeply learn more about this. Right. Quote, or, and there's no like self-awareness style. either. I feel no. like everybody who is participating in these quote unquote subcultures thinks they know the most. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like everyone's espousing knowledge about whatever topic du jour, but nobody nobody thinks like, maybe I don't know everything. You yeah. Know? So I feel like that's the big problem because how do you get out of this mm-hmm. thing where you like, you know, how do you get, how do you actually develop niche taste or yeah. your own kind of personal taste when you think you got it all, so to speak? And I think that's kind of the intention with Double Click is that by participating more intentionally in maybe fewer communities or by being a community or by being a brand that's being more intentional and more exclusive in fewer spaces or at fewer moments that you're able to like actually give people the opportunity to like learn and drill down and experience things at a more sustainable clip as well. Um, But I think, yeah, like that would be the goal was that like having more double clicks and fewer fewer ephemeras Mm -hmm. perhaps (laughs) yeah i mean one of the things we talk about and it's been discussed in many uh think articles whatever and for a couple years now is just i think it is unsustainable to keep up with the rate of trends as i quote online like it is you will whip yourself up into a state of vertigo nausea whatever by hopping from pickled red onion girl to gorp guy to whatever so part of part of the solve might be to you know surrender or rather step back from the trend cycle or uh step offline as a whole because i think and that's also why sorry i'm rambling here but i think that's also why there's been a shift to more kind of analog technology in general cds books um dvds scrabble bananagram um hard cash bring back pennies what you yeah. finish off this i think chapter with which is this line about how communities and brand and platforms should try and play a little harder to get because mm-hmm. when everyone everything's kind of better when you have to work for it that kind of resonated with me a lot yeah thank you trey yeah it's true we got to take the spoon away. you know. Well, they say Gen Zers are loving the library. So hopefully that means more than the headlines. <laughs> oh, my God. Hopefully they're Bring actually reading at the library. <laughs> What's all this then? Huh? Words. Sound um, it out. Now sound it out. Um. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So the new standard. <laughs> or dirt. <laughs> what, what, what does it mean? Please tell us. Well, Eli, would you like to take this one? 
Sure. We can split it. Um, can we have shared plates? Please? Like, do you mind if you, do you mind bringing a couple of other napkins? <laughs> do you mind bringing a couple of forks? Yeah, three spoons. Three spoons. Thank you. Um, well, obviously, so new standard is split into a couple different sections. Um, but I think the overarching gist is that fandom was such a huge topic this year. Um, obviously, the biggest examples would be like Barbenheimer and Taylor Swift. Um, and the Renaissance tour and the World Cup, et cetera. There's all these kind of articles about the and you know write-ups and trend reports about the power of fandom and these collect these moments of collective effervescence, et cetera. <laughs> One thing that we wanted to discuss um, is fandom and how that coincides with the rise of like generative AI in particular, because a lot of the most interesting stories uh, from a brand side this year weren't even products or byproducts of the brand they were from they they were made from fans so the big the biggest example of this would be like balenciaga harry potter or homer simpson singing born slippy or um gag city which is essentially a, a ai created sprawling urban environment that was used to promote uh Nicki minaj's new album so we thought it'd be interesting to explore what happens when the kind of gap between being a fan and creator is wildly diminished and anyone can make anything with the likeness of any brand or any celebrity and how that might impact kind of fan creator, fan celebrity, fan brand dynamics. Mm -hmm. um, and that would be open source entertainment where kind of the source code for creating anything um, anything that you want is readily avail available to you legally or not. I mean, I think one of the big stories of, about this year will be probably a, a crackdown on the availability of um, some of this content. But in my mind, like the the genie, the genie's out of the bottle. Um, and then on the ephemera side, ephemera, like ephemera, ephemera, I think the other thing to come out of this year in terms of like the fandom and other categories collapse was just how loosely fandom and fan has started to be used to describe things that are like not fans and not fandoms. And I think that a femme era, like all of these, whatever, tomato girl, tomato girl era, pickle girl era, like mob wife core, whatever those things are, that they're basically like can like commercial consumption patterns. They're like she and product categories. They're not really something that's like tangible or that is impactful on culture or that even has like a cultural footprint to speak of other than like an affiliate link mm -hmm. and that i think is damaging both in terms of just how brands are thinking about these trends and what it means to capitalize on them in the first place like when you tap the mob wife trend you're not tapping a fandom like you're not tapping a bunch of girls who are truly invested in this like you're tapping girls who are like oh, this is funny lol for now. I'll buy like eight Shein products because of this. But it isn't something that has like legs or has an actual sort of like, I don't know, loyalty element underpinning it that if you, I don't know. Do you know what I mean though? Yeah, like there's, there's kind no of a toothlessness. There. No. Yeah. But I think on both, which is interesting, I guess, with the new standard chapter, like one of the words of Femera is more about this sort of like toothless fan concept that like fan very loosely applied there. Um, and then on the other side, OSINT, which I think is more about changing, like Eli was saying, the dynamic of being a fan versus being a creator 
And if you, as a fan of a brand, have much more power to actually create storytelling around it and to reinterpret its history and to, like, define parts of its legacy, like, what does that mean as a brand who's, like, looking at these fans who have enormous power now over your IP with AI tools, but then also, you know, as a brand who's probably concerned about its own sort of, like... Relevancy. Relevancy, but also copyright. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, and, like, what's the right balance to strike there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, lots to unpack with new standards. Well, yeah, this is sort of interesting to me because one, I again with double click, two, don't think that the creators of these things or participants are that self-aware to know that they are literally doing marketing work for these brands or for yeah. the artists they are fans of, supposedly. Right. Like you are generating so much new content that whose end goal is to sell a product. And you think it is some fun, like cultural thing you can, you know. You think this is fun. You think this is fun. This is a job. You get back to the content mine. Yeah. (laughs) But um, yeah, I that's so strange, like how we are in this hyper capitalist mode where, you know, producing Uh content as creators, like you also, as a influencer or aspiring influencer, even probably know how to create your own pitch deck, which are something, you know, tools that are used to sell something to a brand. Like we are now all familiar with this language of marketing and like, you know, selling things to each other mm-hmm. that n- no culture is kind of immune from, you know, becoming advertising productized or yeah. yeah. Which is actually another word, ad nauseum, which just talks about how everything and every everything and anything has become advertising. So brands, and I'll get. I want to get back to the that point you were making about work uh, and the content mine. I'll get back to the content mine in a second. Um, sorry, boss. The break is over. <laughs> but yeah, one of the things that we talk about in the first chapter, alternate reality, which is why the internet feels so confusing. Um, and annoying in general is this phenomenon that we called ad nauseum, um, which basically just has to do with how the feed has become overly commercialized, where brands are becoming more human. So if you ever if you've ever taken a scroll through threads or the TikTok comments, and you know you're literally in a conversation with Duolingo or Ritz crackers or whatever, who's like calling you their bestie or um, their oomphy or whatever. um that is yeah exactly exactly that is exhausting and on the other hand what you're talking about is like it's not just on the brand side you have gen zers creating pitch decks for themselves uh or for to present to their parents for their preferred christmas gifts you have people doing you know get ready with me's or like here's my product hauls which is in a set in essence like marketing or recommending a product unpaid Um, so we are like both complaining about the commercialization of the feed, but also adopting kind of habits that brands are doing or Mm -hmm. adopting the habits of a brand. Um, and Kyle Raymond Fitzpatrick, who's a, a writer, he has a newsletter called the trend report was talking about this phenomenon in a recent report where he's like, what happens when you, when people becomes, become brands is like, they lose well this is kind of like a tough tough comparison but the reason i think why people feel lonely in a loss of community as he says it's like the job of a brand is to sell not to befriend 
So when you are acting as a brand, whether paid or not on the platform, you are just selling things. You're not really building a tangible substantive community, which goes to the point of kind of ephemera is like chasing all of these trends just leads to hopping from... <laughs> I was gonna I was gonna say something bad. Hopping from one kind of like community to the next. But yeah, I think kind of everyone selling something at all times, whether paid or not, is a huge problem. I think too that people don't realize how much power they have in shaping a brand's story or narrative or legacy. I think you were kind of saying earlier, like the amount of content that you can put out there and create around a brand can supersede what the brand can put out themselves because no brand wants to actively beg or encourage people to create content and be seen doing that because that's that's lame. Yeah. But, you know, as a fan of a brand who has like the IP perhaps and the, the imagination and the AI tools to create whatever you want to say, whatever you want about a brand or musician or something that you're into you can truly begin to shape a narrative, which we've seen a lot of times in the past, you know, five years or whatever, even if it's mm -hmm. like people who took the B movie and made like memes out of it and brought it back to like streaming platforms or whatever, you know, like you can yeah. do so many different things. But I think that from the brand side, the important thing is to arm your fans cleverly with the assets that they can use to tell a compelling story and one that aligns with the messaging you want to get across so you're not like lost in the sauce, so to speak. Yeah. Just yeah. scrambling about how you can get into Gag City or like reply to the Elmo tweet. And Let I, me in. Yeah. I'm not going to name names on this, but I, I'm imagining that it's happened enough that whatever. Anyway, I'm not going to name names, but there was sort of name early. <laughs> it was like early in the generative AI when people were like, make me a house that looks like it's from Wes Anderson, like that sort of thing where it was like whatever prompts. And there was a bunch of product from this clothing brand that started to be made. And it was like all really cool, kind of like futuristic-y, but looked sort of technically possible, like to create a garment or a shoe that looked like that. And like when I was looking at the comments, it was like, oh, this, this brand has like really fallen off recently, but wow, like this stuff is really cool. You know, what I, like where it's like the legacy of the brand has so much potential and has so much, I don't know, sort of, I was going to say, like has so much life left to give, but like the brand itself in terms of the product that it's selling just hasn't really managed to break through or like it doesn't feel like they're having as much of a breakthrough moment. But I'm really curious what OSINT will end up meaning for brands like that that have sort of struggled to find an audience with Gen Z from like a present day product standpoint, but who have enough of sort of a back catalog that brand like that fans can sort of start to innovate on it and reinvent it. And whether or not they'll pick any of that up or take any of that as a sign of where the appetite is too. Because I think that it is such an interesting indication of what people want to see oftentimes and like what doesn't exist. They'll currently. tell you now. They'll tell you and they'll show you and they'll make it. Yeah. And put it on Instagram. I saw it. So you have to just be looking. I yeah. Guess. I saw literally yesterday a video on Instagram of this brand that sells honestly this like heinous white boot with like butterflies on it. And it had a side zip and that it was a reel. And the reel was like first started out with a bunch of comments that was like, oh, cute boot, but the side zip is horrible. Hate the side zip, blah, blah, blah. And so the brand started out with like that. And then it went into the new boot with the back zip. Mm. And they were like, we heard all your comments. We like 
took this back, redid it, and now introducing like the boot with a zip at the back. And all the comments like, oh my gosh, thank you so much for taking our feedback into consideration. Me. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Bestie. You're my favorite brand. I, I forgot the, the, what brand it was. But, you know, I think like I was saying, people have way more power these days when you have like a direct connection and drip mm -hmm. feed, you know, with the brands you love or whatever, like you can literally help shape the things you want to see or, you know, the content that you want someone else to create. It's kind of spooky too much democracy <laughs> my platform too much democracy don't talk to eli about the 2025 because you're not gonna like yeah, it we're gonna take the keys away yeah. i know that's enough now well i mean one of the things that we discussed like the ramifications of osent um and this was originally a concept that was um pitched as parody, I think by Rad Chamel, who's a cultural commentator. Uh, he writes about the internet, um, about the concept of fan unions, where like fans are influencing brand product, brand campaigns, brand taglines, and they are helping to, I don't, they're providing both economic and cultural um, capital, I suppose, to artists, celebrities, brands. And at what point does, does that stop becoming something that you do for fun and start becoming work um, where you should be fully compensated for? So that's one thing that we discussed um, very briefly. There's a, there's a longer form article on that if you're, if you're curious to read. Um, but yeah, I think the end result of OSENT will be twofold. I think it'll be brands who dip their toes further into the, um, you know, their fans influence everything that they do and they'll have the, you know, the reel about their side zip to back zip boot and be super stoked on that. And then there will be, I think, brands and creators who closely guard their IP um, and who don't want their fans to really influence what they're doing at all. I don't think there's a right answer one way or the other. I think you just have to lean in whichever way you're going to do it. Yeah, you're, I think you're either like a shaper of worlds and I think of like Frank Ocean or something who puts out exactly what is true to him mm -hmm. and doesn't really let the fans in in a way that, I don't know, is very meaningful perhaps. But the fans therefore have like a stronger connection to him because they know exactly what he's about versus, a you know, a brand or another musician or artist who doesn't have that kind of boundary strength yeah. i suppose and is like more of a co-creator of content maybe like a taylor swift that's just so mainstream and you can kind of project any idea onto her and it still has like this taylor swifty backed power or something but, but guess, what is it really saying and like who is she really you know what i mean yeah well because i think to that point about osent sort of being a line in the sand i think frank ocean is a really good example because i think what it will mean is that if you're a brand who is going to be very like stiff armed about your IP, a brand or an artist who's going to be very stiff armed about your IP, you have to be a sort of shaper of world to actually deliver. Because I think that there was an interesting article that came out about Disney and that sort of capacity recently, too. But like if you're going to be that sort of strong armed, you need to be bringing people through like exciting novel worlds each time. And like I think a lot of the OSINT rush is a response to boredom and like being bored by what we were talking about with Too Men to Fail, like being bored by brands relying so heavily on nostalgia, being bored by legacy sort of being used as a crutch, like all of those things. And so I think it's basically sort of leveling up the bar a little bit to say that like 
the sort of middle of the road, like, hey, queen, like, isn't really enough of, like, a brand identity to lean on and say, like, oh, no, but, like, you can't, you can't, like, create with us or you can't have license to, like, mess around with this brand or, like, with this whatever creative project. Like, it better be really good. If it's going to be protected under law, should better be good. Should better be good. All right. Speaking of good shit, um, go read the 2024 predictionary. We'll drop it in the description, um, or you could read it directly on www.dna.com forward slash perspective forward slash predictionary. Uh, that is all. Thanks. See you next time.